So this is uh, our second uh, time in Colossians. We went through some introductory material last time, and just by way of review, for those of you that weren't here, we found that uh, Colossians was written by Paul from uh, prison in probably Rome, and that he wrote this letter about the same time that he wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus. From a geographical standpoint, we learned that Colossae was about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and that Paul learned of the work there through his uh, friend Epaphras, who was ministering to and ministering with Paul in Rome. Epaphras uh, was from Colossae, and we think heard about the gospel, or heard the gospel and heard about Christ through Paul's work at Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus for a couple of years, we think. So Epaphras goes back home, starts a church in Colossae, and then um, uh, goes to Rome to be with Paul, to minister to and with him, and that's how Paul hears about the work that's going on there. And uh, you know how it is when, when you, um, you hear so much about someone uh, that you kind of feel like you know them, even though, though you've never met them. And that's the tone that Paul is writing to this small church, this relatively new church uh, in Colossae, writing to them as, a, as a, um, uh, a pastor would who, although he hasn't met them directly, feels like he knows them because he's so connected with uh, Epaphras and I'm sure has been filled in on all the, the inner workings there. So um, the theme there, uh, he w wants uh, them to continue to grow in Christ. Uh, he wants to keep them focused on the basics of who Christ is. We're going to really see that today in the study that we do. Um, we'll see in the coming chapters uh, more explicit out of this false teaching that was going on uh, and all the more reason to really nail down who Christ is because that's where uh, a lot of people lose their way um, in terms of um, various cults and so forth is by losing focus on who Jesus is. So he's really going to nail that down for them. I suggested last week that one of the themes in the book um, that we could look at as far as one of the purposes of the book is in uh, uh, a couple phrases in verses 9 and 10. So uh, let's just pick up there, and we'll touch on that again, and then launch into the rest of the passage. So beginning in verse 9 of Colossians 1, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this phrase that starts chapter, I'm start that starts verse ten. So as to walk, uh, the the so as to in order that, uh, so that you um, that little introductory phrase there really encapsulates the whole book. I'm writing this so that. The gospel will make a difference in your life and so that you can make a difference in other people's lives. And um, that's really, that's really the, the theme there. Um, uh, you're, just, you're just here for a little while and, um, and I want you to make it count. And that's the, the tone there. 
So uh, breaking this down a little bit, um, verses 9 through 12 are really an explanation of uh, the prayer that Paul has been praying. If you look back at verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith, and so forth. Well, who's the we there? So you got at least Paul and, and Timothy, as he talks about in the first part. Uh, Epaphras is there. Onesimus, the, the slave who ran away from his master, Philemon, who lived in Colossae, who got saved when he was in Rome. So Paul has his cohort there um, uh, as he's under house arrest. And um, he said, you know, we, we have been praying for you. And then in verse uh, 9, he gets into um, uh, the kind of what he's been praying. So uh, the first thing, uh, he says, uh, the, the reason we, we've been praying is, as I said, um, so that you can be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is verse 9. So you have spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk. And so forth, and then we have uh, the timing of it. Is it says without ceasing, we have not ceased to pray for you. And I guess that, you know, in practical terms, that means that, you know, this church was always in the front of his mind. I mean, sure, he was doing other things, but, but this was a, you know, a very personal letter. You know, we're we're always praying for you. This is a very, very um, connected comment, uh, showing. Um, just how just how much he was thinking about them, and and don't we all like to know when somebody says, you know, I've really been, I've really been praying for you. You've really been on my mind. Doesn't that make you feel connected <clears throat> to know that somebody's really been praying for you? And uh, you know, so what an encouraging thing um, for us to say to each other, for us to do for each other, and certainly for for Paul to uh, to say, you know, I, you know, I've not ceased to pray for you. You know, we've you really are on my mind a lot. And then we can get into the specifics of what he's been praying for. And as I said, he says, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Filled with the knowledge of his will. Um, God's will, the concept of God's will, gets talked about uh, kind of casually. Um, uh, I want to know what God's will is for my life. Uh, you know, we say uh, the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. You know, um, the this notion that God has His will, His His plan, so to speak, we might say. And and uh, the Bible talks a lot about God's will. Sometimes the the concepts kind of get blurry in our mind, and it's. It's probably worth just a couple comments to clarify what, to just to maybe to organize your thinking. A lot of times when the Bible talks about God's will, he's talking about, or the Bible's talking about God's sovereign will, meaning nothing can happen unless God allows it, right? Um, you know, it was not a good thing that Jesus died on the cross, but but it was part of the plan. You know, was it good? Well, in the scheme of things, it was good. It was a very horrible thing that happened. Uh, was it a good thing that maybe a better example that that uh, you know Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? 
Well, no, but it was allowed to happen, so therefore it was within God's sovereign will. So God is so powerful, nothing can happen that he doesn't allow. So when we talk about God's sovereign will, it's those things that God allows to happen, even though they're evil things. Um, in the Bible, we learn a, a, a lot about what's called God's moral will. Okay, So this is, if you could think, the general boundaries that we are to live within. right? Um, it's God's moral will that, that you know, we not lie and you know kind of ten commandment type things and uh, there's specific guidance about a lot of things in the Bible you know uh, uh, Christians should marry other Christians you know that, that's that's a principle in the Bible uh, you know there are uh, restrictions on uh, certain things or liberate liberties in certain things you know and in the first part of the Bible we find that there are certain things you're supposed to Stay away from eating, but then under the New Testament, said it's okay to eat all of these things, that sort of thing. So there, there are boundaries that guide our behavior, things that define what sin is, right? And so if you're outside that moral boundary, then you would be what we would call sinning. Even though God allows it, it's, it's in his sovereign will, but it's not in his moral will, okay? So... The moral will, as the commands of Scripture defines uh, how we're supposed to behave, right? But then a lot of times when we use the term God's will, people are talking about this concept of a personal will. Um, this uh, sometimes called God's plan for my life. Um, and the notion here is that, that there is perhaps an arc of your life, a story of your life that's God's preference for you, you might say, and that our job is to kind of figure out what that is and then to do it. Um, that notion um, is one that I, I think is not quite as clearly taught in Scripture, and I think there's some debate about this option of a defined will for God for your life um, I think it's one of those things that looking over our shoulder we can see how God worked but I'm not sure the the notion that that our job is to figure out you know this job or that job and if we pick the wrong job it's not going to go well for us and if we pick the right job it is going to go well for us or if we pick the right college is going to go well for us. If we pick the wrong college, it's not going to go as well for us. We pick the right mate or the wrong mate. I think that kind of thinking is probably not scriptural, and I can talk with any of you more about that. I think that there's a fair amount of freedom in the decisions that we make as long as we're within that moral boundary, and we're supposed to make decisions that are honoring God and you know, fulfill the Great Commission and kind of are consistent with the tasks that, that we know about. Um, but um, I'm sure, uh, you know, no matter what our choice is, God can work with us on that. And if we're uh, trying to make choices that are consistent with God's plan, 
I don't think we have to live with a lot of regret, like, well, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have made such and such decision uh, because maybe that was out of God's will. Well, if you broke one of the commands of Scripture, maybe it was out of his will, but um, anyway, it's a, it's a big topic. So when, when Paul says that you can be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, I would interpret that fairly broadly, okay, is the concept there, that, that there's a whole lot in Scripture. There's a whole lot of guidance in Scripture. And if you're in that guidance, then chances are you'll be making wise decisions. So as to walk. We've talked about that. And then what's the manner? To be fully pleasing to him. Right? This is a tricky one, right? Because fully pleasing to him. So you think about, you know, you think of the one person that knows you best. If they knew everything about you, would they be like fully pleased with you? Right? Um, yeah, this is not a raise your hand question. <laughs> Just to be clear. Um, not that any of you were, were heading that direction. I, I certainly wasn't. But, um, but think about what that means to be fully pleasing to him. All right? And just if you had to pick one commandment, right? We all get people talk about do's and don'ts, but if you just had to pick one, that you're supposed to be fully pleasing to God, that pretty much covers it, right? Think about that one. Um, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So bearing fruit means we're supposed to be doing things that are accomplishing something, right? Um, I don't have the application of this totally worked out in my mind as clear as Dr. Blackaby did, but this concept of um, God's working and, and go join what God's doing um, so that you can see some fruit, you can see some action happening. Um, maybe that applies to this. I, again, I don't have that perfectly worked out, but um, I think sometimes there's good work done where you don't see fruit immediately, right? Um, some things take a lot longer to incubate than others. Um, but... Uh, should be some sort of fruit in, in the things that you do, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that's some of the content of Paul's prayer. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The word strengthen and power both use the same root for power that is in our word dynamite. So that's the, 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 this a really powerful word. And then this, according to his glorious might, apparently the word might is a different word for power that has to do with, with like power in motion, like um, uh, kinetic energy, you know, the, the, use a physics term, it's, it's, Applied power. It's power that's accomplishing something. Um, so that, uh, and, but this, the second half of this kind of cracks me up a little bit. It says, may you be strengthened with all power to his glorious might. And he doesn't say so that you can start a new church or so that you can 
you know, evangelize the world, you know, so that you, it says, for your endurance and your patience, right? What is harder than enduring and being patient, right? What is harder than that? And I just think that's kind of funny that, that God's going to apply this incredible power for this purpose. Well, I think it makes sense, right? Because we know it, that takes a lot of power um, to in, for endurance and patience. Of course, this wasn't necessarily just easy times for Christians, right? The political climate was probably starting to shift a little bit. Um, you know, we know that it's not too many years later that big-time persecution is going to start. So perhaps Paul, in a prophetic voice, knew that they were really going to need to endure and stay the course. And, you know... When Jesus wrote, I forget which church he wrote in Revelation, that one of the big commendations was, you guys are hanging in there. You're staying the course. Um, you're just, you know, you're just, you know, it's like, you know, you're standing in the river and the current's coming this way, and sometimes the best you can do is just to not move, you know, and... I think that's kind of life sometimes, right? You know, you feel like everything's coming at us, and if we're not going backwards, we feel like we're winning. Right? We're just, you're just kind of holding on. And I think that's a good picture that he gives us there, that you can be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance and patience. And what's the last part? Not only does he want us to, to be enduring and to be patient, but he wants us to have joy about it, right? So I'm standing here, everything's coming at me, and I'm going to put the smile on, <laughs> you know. So, I, I mean, that's, that's a big prayer right there, and that, that's asking a lot. So I think if Paul was praying that for me, I would be glad that he was praying that for me uh, because that's certainly where most of, us, most of us are. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He wants us to be grateful, right? To be grateful, to always look that, you know, with giving thanks to the Father, you know, it's, it's, it's from the Father that these blessings are flowing. You know, he spends a long time in um, the latter part of Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, I mean, and chapter 2 rather, uh, remember we talked about all those spiritual blessings and they were all couched in the concept of being in Christ and, you know, all these blessings are, are sourced from the Father. And it's the Father, it says, who has qualified you, my Bible says. Does somebody have another word there? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. Does anybody have another word there? Everybody say qualified? Okay, cool. Uh, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So, um, you know, it's God that kind of arranged this... Um, method for us to, to come into the family. Um, so here we see God as deliverer. In verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. See him as deliverer and we see him as benefactor. Uh, we get this inheritance of the saints. Ephesians 1, again, talks a lot about, remember we talked about the inheritance that we get, which it, part of the inheritance is receiving the Holy Spirit uh, when we are saved. And 
you can kind of see if you were to read Ephesians and Colossians next to each other, a lot of the same themes, and that's because they were kind of written about the same time. That adds that adds support to the to the concept that they were written about the same time because he's in the same frame of mind, and um, you know we we do that right. Um, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So now Paul is transitioning from the work of the Father to the work of the Son. And so we're going to go through the next few verses which really talk about, you know, it's truly all about Jesus in these passages. And a lot of people think that... um, that this section is maybe um, an ancient Christian hymn or an ancient Christian poem that was either written by Paul or borrowed by Paul and maybe adapted for his purpose. But apparently in the Greek it has uh, a certain structure to it where everybody would know if they read it, oh, this is kind of a, a poem sort of thing and it might have made it easy to remember or you know, things are easier that way sometimes. All right, so beginning with verse 15, these are just the attributes of Jesus because we get the lead in um, in verse 13. Transfer to us the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And then when it says in verse 15, he, it's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. We're going to take these phrases a chunk at a time, just to comment briefly. He is the image of the invisible God. So, the word image there isn't like what we would look at like a photograph. Alright, so a photograph is kind of an image of me, but it's not me. Alright? Um, if you take it up a notch, I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen the Harry Potter movies, uh, their pictures move. So if you have a picture of someone and the pictures move, Uh, Of course, Apple just announced that all of you that rush out to buy your new iPhones, when you take a picture, you'll be able to watch the picture move because it captures a a little miniature video before and after when you take your picture. I'm sure we all need that, right? Um, So, but this word for image, it's like not some close copy of God or just some mere reflection of God. This word is... This, it's like, you could almost say he is, he was our example of God. He, you know, he came to earth, he is, he is the physical representation of the invisible God. Okay, so there's no, the, from a qualitative standpoint, it's not saying he's almost God, or he's a copy of God, or he's somewhat God-ish. It's, he is God. He's the, I don't know how else to say it. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. So here's a a phrase that could be torqued a little bit and could be confusing. It says the firstborn of all creation. Well, that, the way we would use firstborn sounds like someone who's been born, right? Um, You have my firstborn and my secondborn. They were both born. They were both created, right? But we know that Jesus is not a created being. He's, he is God, eternal with God, as God. 
So what does this firstborn of all creation mean? Well, it means um, it's a title that in the, the Hebrew, there's, the firstborn had to do with position and stature and position. Um, so it's one commentator says, the term firstborn does not refer to time, but to place or status. Jesus Christ was not the first being created, since he himself is the creator of all things. It simply means a first importance, a first rank. So firstborn implies both Christ's priority to all creation in time and his sovereignty over all creation in rank. So it's a, it's a title, not an explanation of how Jesus got here. Verse 16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This little phrase, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, um, some of the false teachers were, were talking about, they would have lists of things like this, and we can get into what he's referring to at another day, but, but this is, again, Paul talking about Christ in the context of counteracting some of the false teaching that they were getting. Um, just to make one comment, um, I don't know, maybe I'll come back to this. Let's keep going. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, before all things. That tells you right there he's not created, because all things were created. He was before that, right? So, all the things that were created... But yeah, he was before that. So he wasn't created. right? And in him all things hold together. Um, I don't want to butcher this, and if anybody that really you know, subscribes to Civic American, you know, feel free to jump in and correct me. But um, you guys have heard about um, this big, is it in Switzerland, the big cyclotron, cyclotron uh, the, the large collider, they call it. Um, that they're looking for this particle, which the physicists don't like the term, but some people call it the God particle, called the Higgs boson. This subatomic particle that they hope, if they find it, which they think they have, they're still working on it, may somehow explain why atoms hold together, why they don't just all fly apart. Because if you've seen the models of atoms, right? You've got the little protons there, you've got the electrons that are circulating around, and it's mostly space. Well, what creates that space and holds everything together. And um, they think the Higgs boson may explain gravity and that sort of thing. And uh, So some people call it the God particle, and some people have thought of this verse. Well, in him all things hold together. Um, which, you know, I've, some people get confused and try to make the Bible a science book. It's not a science book. But... It's never going to contradict science because it's true, right? And in areas where it seems like it contradicts science, science just hadn't caught up yet, right? And so eventually, science will catch up. In him, all things hold together. This is not, um, not a theological explanation, but it kind of helps you remember um, 
in Vietnam was the first uh, military conflict where there was such a massive use of helicopters. And in the particular helicopter that they used at the top, there's this big nut that holds the rotors on. And they call it the Jesus nut for two reasons. First of all, it holds everything together. And second of all, if that thing comes off, you better be praying to Jesus. Because it, when, the, when the rotor comes off, the, you no longer have a flying aircraft. Uh, but they call that the Jesus nut. And so um, a lot of times that term, the Jesus nut, has been used to, to um, you know, if there's one thing that can go wrong, you know, this is the, the critical part of the, of the process. Um, apparently mountain climbers use it for this one particular thing that hold, will hold you to the side of the mountain. You don't want that to mess up. In any event, that's just a couple of images there to help you think about, in him all things hold together. That phrase may mean more than we know it does right now. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Head of the body, head of the church. Um, that head there means a lot of things, right? Um, but it can mean authority, but it also can mean the source um, and both of those are true in the case of the church. Um, he is a source of, of creating the body of Christ, and of course he is the head of the church. Uh, he's the beginning, this, the firstborn from the dead. Um, Christ was resurrected from the dead, never to die again. Now Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, but eventually Lazarus died, right? I mean, we don't see Lazarus walking around still. So he got a resurrected body, but it wasn't, I mean, it was a, a resurrected old body. Um, we're going to get resurrected new bodies, bodies like Christ. And all of 1 Corinthians, right, we talked about 1 Corinthians 15. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Christ, and that because Christ was resurrected, then we can look forward to resurrection. Because Paul says, if, well, if Christ wasn't resurrected, then, you know, we're hopeless. So this firstborn of the dead, that's what that means. He paved the way for us. He showed that the power is there to resurrect somebody from the dead, so therefore we can look forward to that same power to be resurrected. All right, we're going to wrap up, I promise. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's... There's Exodus language here, right? Reconciling things, coming out of darkness, through the blood of the cross. There's, there's Exodus language there about God uh, bringing us to himself, uh, taking us out of uh, slavery, and through the blood of Jesus, uh, reconciling us to himself. This concept, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is another one of those words that if you're not careful you might not appreciate just how much this means that Jesus was God. And um, just one quick quote, it says, the word translated fullness in the, is the Greek word pleroma, I won't get into it. It says, it was a technical term in the vocabulary of the false teachers, and it meant the sum total of all divine power and attributes. So when it says all the fullness of God, it means everything that there is about God it's in Jesus, right? So anybody that would try to create space between Jesus and God is really messing up. Um, 
Let me pause there, just a couple quick things. There's a trio of W's in verses 9 through 11 or 12. Paul prays for wisdom so that we can walk and then so that we can work, right? And that's the way it is. We have wisdom so that we can we can walk closer together with Christ. We can start to see the world the way he does. We can serve the world the way he wants us to. And then that is the work. That That's the, the fruit that starts to happen. And then as we see how it all works, then that gives us more wisdom. And then we can walk even closer. So this wisdom, walk, and work. Wisdom, walk, and work. It's a cycle that we should all be on. And then finally, just to make the point, Every cult that's semi-Christian, or at least claims Christian roots, whether it's Christian scientists, or unity, or Jehovah's Witness, or um, the Mormons, they all miss it with Jesus. They claim he's something other than God, and that's where they miss it. Just for example... um, in verse 16 and 17, there's Jehovah's Witness. They put this other word in there. They say, for by him all other things were created. All other things were created. He is before all other things. In him all other things hold together as if he himself was created and then he created everything else. They just stick an extra word in there. you know. But they, they lose their way when they don't See, God is God, and Jesus is God. All right, we better quit. That was a lot to cover. Um, Any final thoughts? All right, Father, um, help us to understand more your Son. Help us to appreciate the amazing gift that we have in Christ. Father, I'm so thankful that we have the only living religion, that we have a religion based on a person, not on a bunch of rules. And Father, through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us to be more and more Christ-like each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.